a listener production. Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Squires. Welcome to On Her Game. I'll admit my knowledge of bobsleigh is pretty limited. To be honest, most of it has come from where else but the movie Cool Runnings. But Australia has a booming bobsleigh scene and it's being led by Ash Werner. Ash is incredibly determined and fearless. The latter you need more than anything else to do her sport. Ash was picked up for bobsleigh almost accidentally, but has never looked back, quitting her rugby and league dreams to travel around the world, competing in this fascinating, thrilling, yet dangerous winter sport. Our sunburnt country seems a world away from the icy tracks of bobsleigh, but Ash's winter Olympic dream almost came true in 2018 when her team qualified for the Games, only for all that to come crashing down when the Australian governing body forbade them from going. As a kid, Ash had the same high energy she has as an adult, playing every sport she could. The earliest memory I have, I think my parents were like, oh, she just has a bit of energy, we need to channel that into something productive. <laughs> and um, so I was a swimmer when I first started and oh. I loved being in the pool and then I loved running and kind of just really forged myself in those two areas until I think I was about 12 and then, and then I started wanting to be a real girly girl <laughs> and I wanted to wear a skirt. So my kind of middle ground was playing netball because I got to wear a skirt and play sport and run around. So <laughs> I didn't think of that. Yeah. I kinda, yeah, I ended up um, into netball and touch football kind of the age of 12, 13. I wanted to play team sports. Literally my, my life was just sport as a kid. That's all there is, all I remember. <laughs> and the only way to get that energy out. Mm. Was your family sporty? Yeah, both my parents um, loved sport as as they were kids and growing up, my the women on my mum's side were kind of Olympic Hungarian swimmers up until wow. World War Two. So no pressure yeah. um, <laughs> in a pool from the age of birth. And um, and my we're reminded dad, of that fact every time that you put the goggles remember, on. Yeah. When you come home, everyone else in your family made it, so you have yeah. to too. Oh, no. no big deal. I was like, oh, I'll do breaststroke today. Um, you may only be yeah. eight, but you know, plenty of time. Yeah, and um, yeah, my dad just played every sport, basketball, touch football. And, mm-hmm. and um, I, yeah, I just kind of fell in love with sweat, I think, just as a kid. So you were always reminded about your Olympic um, heritage. Did you then have Olympic dreams? Was that something that you started to own going, oh my God, this is in my genes. I could do this. I love this. I actually think my Olympic dreams came before the prestige of the family. You know, my my mum was really good in the sense of she never put any pressure on me to perform. Um, It was always do it for the love of it as opposed to do it to get somewhere. And then I remember I was four and I was watching the opening ceremony and I was like, that, like, that's, that's what I want to do. Probably not as eloquent. Well, maybe, I don't know. Um, (laughs) And I just said from that age that that's what I wanted to do. And my mom kind of tried to talk me out of it because, you know, (laughs) high pressure sport and high level sport can be intense, especially for Mm. kids. So um, she always just made me remember that I was doing it because I loved it first. And that was always always the basis of everything mm. that I did in the future. That's so healthy, isn't yeah. it, for young young kids? Um, so when did it start getting serious about sport? You ditched swimming and you focused on netball and touch football? Yeah, it, it, was, it was serious for swimming. Um, I really wanted to get there at as young as I could. But I think at that stage, I was doing it to get to the Olympics rather than doing it because I loved swimming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I remember one day I was playing touch footy with school and I loved it and 
mum was saying, you know, you have to go to swimming now. And I, I didn't want to go. And one day I said I had a headache. So I, I asked if I could take the afternoon off. Mm-hmm. And that afternoon turned into like 15 years. And, you know, she just looked at me. She said, you don't want to go, do you? You don't enjoy it. And I said, no, but I, I want to go to the Olympics. And she said, well, you can spend all this time doing something you don't enjoy to get to somewhere that you might want to go or mm. you can kind of find something you love and, and see if you get there that way. And um, I think at that time I, I just didn't love it enough and mm. you can't really put that much time and that many hours and that much of yourself into something that you don't love. So I started playing more touch football, loved that, had an amazing career there and then kind of one day at uni games, I got picked up by the AIS for a talent transfer program into mm-hmm. sevens. They're like, hey, you're a big lady. You're tall. Let's uh, <laughs> you do a push-up. Okay, come, come try out for sevens. And, and um, that kind of, I guess, reignited it a little bit. And then I was full gung-ho into sevens and mm. started playing 15s to help with my tackling because, you know, touch football, not much, not much tackling. No. Well, not meant to be much tackling. <laughs> also not an Olympic sport, touch football. Yes. But sevens is. Yeah. There you go. And, and well, it would be when that exactly. happened. Yeah. And so my goal was actually, weirdly enough, Tokyo for sevens. Yeah. And then one day I kind of just accidentally walked into Australian trials for bobsled and thought I was just testing data. And at the end, they said, hey, you know, you, you, you're you doing all right. You know, do you want to come come with us to Canada and kind of try bobsled? There's an Olympics next year. And I believe in opportunities. And I said this kind of came along at a time when it was just kind of the right time. Yeah. And I made a leap of faith and I, I jumped across to bobsled. Let's backtrack. Let's go. Let's bobsled. Okay. So how did you went to test data? Explain that to me, the moment that someone obviously said to you, hey, you're in the Rugby Sevens AIS program, but try out for bobsled. What, what happened there? <laughs> Look, to be honest, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> I, I'm just one of those people that love training. Mm. Like I just love training. I love mm. working hard and I love pushing myself. And a friend of mine at the time said, hey, like our, our, our game this weekend got cancelled or we had a bye or something. And she said, hey, we got a weekend off. You want to go do more training? And I was like, oh, sure. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) So she said that the bobsled team had contacted her because she was, she's an amazing athlete. Um, Mm. Who was, or she was also a rugby sevens player in the program. And she, she was just one of the most phenomenally strong athletes I've ever seen in my life. And they had seen her on Instagram lifting and they had messaged her and said, hey, do you, do you want to come along and test data sets to see kind of what the Australian standard should be? Mm. And she said, yeah, um, what are you looking for? And they said speed. And she said, well, I've got a friend. I was playing wing at the time, so I was kind of a little bit speedy. Yeah. Um, do you mind if I, like, can she come along? And they said, yeah, please bring her along um, if you think that she'll, she's got what we're looking mm-hmm. for. And we both kind of rocked up and everyone was having, like, wearing spikes and lifting shoes. And I was like, ooh. Do I go barefoot? Like, what do I do? I yeah. don't, I've never done any like proper proper Olympic Did lifting. Did you have or... any idea that this could launch you into a bobsledding direction? You just wanted to train. To be honest, I made a joke about it in the car. I was like, hey, man, <laughs> wouldn't it be so funny if all of a sudden we made the bobsled team and then the cool <laughs> runnings became true and we were like, <laughs> uh, yeah. And then, and then I had to make that phone call to my mum who also said, ah, cool runnings. Yeah. I was like, no, no, mom, seriously. I was actually going to see if we could get through the whole podcast without me bringing up cool runnings. I'm like, she's going to think it's really uncool, no pun intended for me to bring that up, but you brought it up. I can't believe I did that. I did 
yeah, that's okay. Oh. You're the bobsled. I see. You oh. can bring it up. Oof. Okay, we'll let that one slide. So oh, then, yeah, there we go. Yeah. Well done. Well done. It's getting icy, isn't it? That's not oh. cool, Sam. That's oh. not. Ah, oh, there we go. I did it. Oh, Lord. Okay, <laughs> we have to stop. <laughs> so you, um, so yeah, so you, you just thought that you were just doing some data sets and you yep. see how you go. Yep. How soon after did they go, oh, actually, we want you? So at the end of that weekend, they said, hey, you know, congratulations. We think you'd be a great addition to the team. And I said, what team? And they said, uh, well, these were Australian trials um, and we leave for Canada in three weeks. And I wow. was like, oof. Mm. Yeah. Oh, this is uncomfortable. <laughs> and yeah, it was, it was a very hard decision. At the time, I think I always kind of thought that I would probably go back to rugby. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I wanted to test it out. It was three months and it was a new experience for me. And I'm very, very big on opportunity and experiences and really kind of following my dreams and everything. Yeah, door opens. You walk through. I'm really bad at navigating door frames, to be honest. So that's kind of like an odd (laughs) metaphor for me. My dad is laughing right now, I can tell you. But um, yeah, I I talked it through with my family and and I, I talked it through with my sevens coach at the time as well. And, you know, I think I was kind of at the I think 23, 24. I was going to say how old you are, yeah. And at that time, they were trying to bring a lot of younger girls into sevens mm. to really kind of foster this 10, 12-year career. And so I was at this really kind of precarious point. And um, for me, I made a decision that give it a go for three months and if bobsled doesn't work out, then I will work my my butt off to get back to where mm. I was at sevens and see what could come of it. But I'd kick myself if I didn't take this opportunity. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Are you an adrenaline junkie? Not normally. I right. am now. I yeah. have been wholly oh, converted. You have to be, yeah. But back in the day, like, uh, you know, I'm seatbelt on and go 10Ks under the speed limit. Uh, no roller coasters <laughs> for me. Um, wow. Yeah, I'm <laughs> the biggest roller coaster ever. <laughs> I had no, even my mum was like, how How did you, I have no idea. I had no reference point. I didn't know. And I, um, I watched a couple of races on YouTube and <laughs> I watched a couple of crash videos on YouTube. Sure. And um, I was like, well, I seem prepared now. So. Yeah, if that's the worst. Let's go. Um, and you said about your mum, but like take me back to their reaction. I can imagine when you, you don't know, they're thinking they have this rugby rugby sevens daughter having to tell your parents, actually, I'm I'm going to try bobsled. What was their reaction? Yeah. Yeah. Maya, <laughs> bless my mum. She, um, she was always so terrified of me playing rugby. Um, oh, she's, <laughs> it's a much better option then. I know. Just, <laughs> she's like the most Jewish Hungarian mother, like so overprotective, love her to bits. Like she protected me so much. And I remember one day she was watching my game and she saw me get sat on in a tackle and she was just screaming on the side, like poor, my poor mother. Um, and so for me, like I always thought it was going to be really funny telling her. And, and I think she was okay because she also didn't have a reference point. She was like, oh, sure. bobsled, that seems safer. Sure. Um, and Which my, the Jamaicans do it. Yeah, right? She's yeah. like, oh, that's okay. They didn't <laughs> suffer any serious injuries in the movie, so I'm sure they're going to be all right. <laughs> yeah. And um, my dad was just like, all right, if this is what you want to do, I will support you. So everyone was really excited and everyone cool. was really supportive. I think it was also just nobody knew what I was really getting myself into or yeah, how much it would yeah. change my life. Well, but I say they probably didn't understand, probably thought it was just something like early 20s that you're just going to explore, something cool, something interesting, and then you'll be back on the right path either with your studies or with Rugby Sevens pretty soon afterwards. Pretty much. Essentially, it was just, oh, you know, that's just Ashley being Ashley. Like I told my friends and none of my friends were surprised. 
They were just like, yeah, oh, yeah, right. that makes sense. That's you. That's something you would do. Cool. Yeah, like move countries. Yep, no problem. Like try a new sport overseas. Yeah, yeah, that seems like something oh. Ashley would do. And I was kind of disappointed at that because I was like, guys, this Guess is so what? cool. And everyone's like, oh, that's just Ash. It's <laughs> <laughs> <is> not. <laughs> okay, thanks, guys. Be yeah, supportive. Good. That's fine. <laughs> so take me to the first time that you stood at the end of the slope and was about to get into the sled for the first time. Yeah. Yeah, that was an experience. Um, so our first day, we got to Canada. We landed in Vancouver, drove to Whistler. And the day we got there, the day we got there, we were watching the Canadian team trials and um, they broke the speed record. They went something like 157 kilometers an hour. And I was standing at the finish dock and they were cheering. And I just looked at one of the girls and I said, oh, I'm not doing that. <laughs> nah, nah, nah. <laughs> Don't care if you pay for my ticket. It's a bit cold. I'm not really here for that. That's fine. I didn't realize that was what I was getting myself into. <laughs> she was like, oh, come on, Ash, you'll be fine. And I was like, ah, I'm so clumsy. This is going to go so wrong. <laughs> um, and then they took us to the top of the track. And when you stand, Whistler is just this monster, the beast of a track. It's the mm. fastest track in the world. It's It's got this ridiculous drop when you stand at the top, like, where you run is essentially like a, a three-story drop. Like it's from the movies, you stand there and you it's just mist everywhere and there's this drop and you have to like kind of edge, go to the edge but hold on to something and lean over oh. and try to have a look like where you're going. You can't see into the first corner because it's, wow. it's so steep. And, wow. and again, I was like, oh, that's quite steep, but I didn't, I didn't really know what that meant. And then, you know, the next day we walked the track, we had a look, we learned the corners. No, and reference then, point, right? That's your first track that you've seen. That's my first track. I'm yeah. Like, oh, that's ice. That's, that's yeah. Not right. But yeah, the first day we kind of got in this thing called a monobob, mm. which at the time was a training tool, which mm-hmm. is now an Olympic event. Mm-hmm. And we were going from corner seven. So there's 16 corners in Whistler. We were going from like the third start down. And I was sitting, I was sitting in this sled. I had my hands on the, the D rings, which is what we steer with. And I, I turn around and there's a guy that was going to push me off. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, how fast do we go? And he goes, oh, you're probably about 100. And I was like, I've never gone 100 kilometers in my life, mm. maybe a couple of times in a car. And I said, oh, how do I steer? And he goes, oh, just pull left and pull right. You'll be fine. And just push me off. <gasps> so there is no simulation nah. that you do beforehand. Nah. There's no nah. like, <laughs> I don't know, like in, in surfing, when you learn to surf, you do it on the beach first before you, nope. Nope, you're straight on the track. Yeah. It's like, See ya. here's the deep end. Wow. I'm going to weight you up and push you in. Like, yeah, weight you up. That's, <laughs> how you, that's how you go. And, and you have so no... what happened? No idea. I, I, I got to the bottom. Um, but were you like, at that stage, were you like this cheering, thrill seeker energy or were you simply holding on for dear life group with fear? Definitely the latter. Yeah. I, I, like, I'm a high energy person. I'm excited about everything. Um, in theory, and then you put me in the front of a bobsled and tell me I'm going to go 100 kilometers an hour with no seatbelt and that I have to steer myself there, and there's no one to tell me left or right. Like, you have to see what's happening and and you go. And um, I remember I got to the bottom and I was like, oh, oh, uh, 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 eyes open wide. I was a little bit seasick, like I had my yeah. city legs. And um, they said, you want to go again? And I was like, I think so. And, and so I, I went again and and then they said, "You want to go again?" I said, "I don't know, but yes." And I was just really confused. I I'd were you never confused. Felt. Were you hooked? Were you like, I, I I love that, or I don't know. To this day, I I'm just not sure. I know that I was kind of addicted to everything about the sport. You know, now the speed's one of my favorite things. Like yeah. now, absolutely, I'm a yeah. thrill seeker, adrenaline junkie, 
give me the fastest thing possible, put an accelerator on it and I'll take it. And I love that now. I think at the time I was just so overwhelmed with jet lag, being in a new country, yeah, 100%. new sport, new people. And now it's just essentially it was like me being pushed into a new life almost. Mm. And it was so much more than just experiencing the, the track. It was mm. just, oh, this is who I am now. <laughs> so can you explain to me, explain your sport and explain what happens in a race. We've got an idea about what you said there, but how do you know how to steer, the turns, all of that? Tell us, how does it work? So essentially in women in bobsled, we do two events. It's the two women and the individual event, which is monobob. So this is it men that only do the four, yeah. like we cool runnings? Yeah. Only so men do point. two and four and women do two and one. And um, essentially in the, the women's event or in the two women event, you've got a driver, which is me, and then you've got a brakeman in the back. The brakeman's job is essentially to be the motor. They push as hard as they can for the first, depending on the track, you know, maybe 40 to 60, 70 meters, 30 Mm -hmm. to however many. And we both push. I get in early. They keep running. Then they get in. And then it's up to me to essentially drive the sled down the track as fast as possible. Sounds really easy. Not quite. Mm. (laughs) Um, There's a lot that goes into driving. There's also a lot that goes into the push. It it seems like such an easy sport, but the technicalities of it is actually probably one of the things I love the most. Mm-hmm. I love that, you know, as a driver, I might have 30 to 40 meters of running, but I've got to be the most explosive human being that's ever existed in that time. Mm. And every minute angle of my body, every, you know, if my elbow is at 91 degrees as opposed to 90 degrees, I'm going to lose a hundredth and a hundredth is everything in this mm. sport, you know? So I love that. And then I love for driving, as I said, I'm, I'm such a nerd. And so the driving aspect of it is a lot of physics. It's, mm. it's like weather control, you know, oh, mm. wh- how am I going to drive based on the weather conditions that are today? Mm. The weather conditions now, as opposed to in the next hour are completely different. Mm. So I'm going to have to drive differently. Mm. You know, I'm going in a little bit later into this corner, a little bit more to the right. So I'm going to have to steer differently. And that means that in two corners, I'm going to have to steer differently again. Mm. And then all of that is happening at you know, like you're How covering. How physical is the steering going up on it? Because you so see you guys go up. Yeah. It's so you're like just, that. you have to, yeah. How, how would you describe that? You just have to have control over. Yeah. It's a little bit of a movement can make a big difference on yeah. when you're going that fast. Essentially, it's like you're trying to really lightly tickle someone and it's just like a little oh, movement of the wow. finger. It's so sensitive, right? Yeah. And, and all of that has to be taken into consideration. Mm. And then you're on the corner and, and you kind of have to know that if, if we're, too high, I, I can't steer because I don't have pressure. If I'm too low, I can't let go of the steer because there's too much pressure. And mm. and it just all of that, mm. and you're moving 30 meters in a second. And that's what I love about it. I just, it's always changing, it's always different. Every track's different. Every track is different. Do you have in every a way. set number of turns that you have to go through in a track for a race? Uh, I mean, you have to go from corner one to the finish corner. Um, and each track has a different amount of corners. You know, Whistler's 16. The track in Beijing that's being built is going to be 16. You know, they can vary to like 19 or less 14. You know, it really depends where you are. You said that the women compete in the um, the two-man and the, also the monobob, but the monobob's only just been introduced for the next Winter Olympics. Is that right? Yeah. So they, they came about um, after Pyeongchang and they're trying to kind of even up the amount of medals that can be won by both men and women. So sure. men had four men and two men and women just had the women's event. So why don't the women do the full, full person? So at the moment, they're trying to really grow the women's field in kind of all disciplines. Um, there's a huge 
disparity between the amount of men that race bobsled and the amount of women that race bobsled. And in order for one, essentially four-man team, you'd need four push athletes and a pilot. And we just don't have the numbers in the women's field at the moment to field a strong four-man team. It's also really expensive because four-man sleds are bigger, so the cost to buy them is more, the cost to transport them is more, and the cost of field teams is a lot more. So they found that when they first introduced Monobob, they had kind of funded sleds. And instead of buying a sled, which can cost, you know, fifty dollars to $100,000, you had to pay a rental fee for the week. And it, they saw the number of women that were able to race kind of skyrocket and really pull in a lot more girls and also a lot more countries that might not be able to field a two or even a four-man mm. team as well. So they're trying to really grow that sport. Um, so is it the same sled and same dimensions and everything that everyone has to have in the monobob? Is that the same as two men? So the two man sleds and the monobob sleds are different, but in mono, all the sleds are standardized Stand- to yep. a point. So you can customize it a little bit, but they're selling like one standard type of sled. Whereas in the women's event, you can you can buy sleds from anywhere you want, really. How much of a difference does a sled make? All of it. Well, I, I like to say I strongly believe that the sport is one third push, one third driving and one third equipment. And the third of equipment is is huge. Because I was going to ask you, how in Australia do you train for a bobsled? Do we have a track here? Do we, um, and how do you train for that? Or do you just have to essentially move your life overseas for a greater portion of the year in order to do that? Yeah. So I spend my off season, or I guess anywhere from three to six to nine months of the year in Sydney. And with that, I have a base at the New South Wales Institute of Sport that I love. Um, I have an amazing coach there. He has, he's just phenomenal. He's done so much with me and um, I love working with him. So I'm kind of on the running track and in the gym. Essentially, I spend six months training for like five seconds of running. And then on that, I'll do a little bit of hand-eye coordination work and make sure that my hand-eye coordination stays where it needs to be and Mm. I can respond to stimulus quickly. So that's most of my off-season training. And then um, this year, we kind of want to get on ice as soon as possible. So there'll be some push tracks around the world that will be open. and, And that's essentially an indoor facility where you've got a sled, ice, and you just practice the push. And we're going to try and get somewhere, you know, world depending, but hopefully we can get on ice as soon as possible. And then as soon as tracks open up anywhere in the world, we're kind of the first people there because we just have to be. There's no tracks here? The closest track to us is Korea. Right. Which used to be an eight-hour flight away and is now two 12-hour flights. Right. Plus quarantine. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like a three-week process. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's insane. Um, and just tell me about the pressure that your body goes under if you're um, that fast and going up and down along the corners and things, what's the pressure like on your body in a race? So G-force is a weird thing. It's hard to explain, but you know the the feeling when a plane takes off? So I think that's anywhere between half and one G and what we would experience in the sled can be anywhere up to six Gs. So you've got that downward pressure on as a driver, me on my on my head and neck and the brakemen because they're hunched over, kind of lying flat packed, essentially their IKEA furniture in the back. Um, they get those G forces along the whole back part of their body. So the brakemen actually feel the G's and it it put it puts a lot more pressure on their bodies than it does me in the front. And that's why we we also kind of have two brakemen to keep them fresh so that they can push and take mm. the Gs and then rest and recover as well. Um, and when you're going down, you're driving, what is a brakeman? Is the brakeman's big job basically the push? 
the push is everything in this and sport. And do they just crowd down? Yep, they stay as completely still as possible. Essentially, Can they see anything? No, they they look between their legs. I always tell my brakeman to kiss the ice. Um, <laughs> you want to just stay as low as possible and make sure that your center of gravity is straight. And essentially, you're tensing your abs. You're tensing everything from your abs down the whole way down. You want to be so aerodynamic. Yep, you want to not move at all. You want to make sure your top is kind of a little bit loose so that you can... What do you hold on to? There, you hold on to the frame of the sled. So if you hit the wall... Yep, you feel your it. Your fingers you, could get chopped off? No, no, no. You you get like maybe a little knock depending on the make of the sled, the way the frame is built. It, sometimes you get you can like attach handles to the frame, but your fingers are pretty safe there. But you, you definitely feel it on your body. Jesus. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how dangerous is this? How many crashes are we talking about? And how deadly... To be honest, is the sport. I think I don't think it's as dangerous as most people Imagine. think. Yeah, mm. it it looks bobsled crashes generally look a lot worse than they are. The majority of injuries will come from lifting in the gym or pushing the sled, where you might do a hammy or a calf or a quad or something like that. In saying that, crashes can be quite bad. Um, you know, I, my first day in a two man sled, I was in a crash and broke both my shoulders. But that is so not the norm that very, very rarely happens. And I think apart from muscle tears and strains, the most common injury would be concussion, which isn't good. But um, most of the time, if you're going to crash, it's kind of like a gentle roll. It's just really loud. Now, they always, talking about crashes, they always say it's good to get that first crash out and you alluded to it before. You really got your first crash out of the way, didn't you? Nice and early. <laughs> take, me, take me back. Was that the first day that you ever got into bobsled? Uh, that was my first day in a two-man sled. So we'd had kind on of like... On that same Canada trip? Yeah, we'd had kind of 10 days in a monobob just training and learning. And, and at the time, I really quite didn't quite grasp the concept of bobsled or driving. And so I had a few spills um, just by myself, which I think is fine. You can cop it because you're like, well, I did that to myself, so mm. I deserved it. Um, and, and I walked out of those completely fine. And then one day we were we were learning. So you'd go from like the individual into the two-man sled because you have more weight. It's faster. The steering is different. So it's kind of a progression, I guess. And yeah, we were, we were just, we're at corner 13, which is infamous in Whistler. It's called 50-50 for a reason. Right. And um, we just didn't make it out on all four runners and, and ended up, yeah, kind of getting launched off the end and landing upside down in the next corner. And the way I was holding on was what I'd been told at the time wasn't the safest and I kind of had my arms like inside my knees. Mm. And the impact, As a brakeman yeah, this one. Yeah. yeah, sorry, I was in the back and and I had my arms inside my knees and as soon as we had the impact, my knees went like that and just took my shoulders out. Right. And uh, so I got, I ended up with a broken collarbone on my right side and then I dislocated my left shoulder, tore my rotator cuff and damaged my bicep tendon on the left. Oh, wow, you really... I did, I made a mess. Yeah. I don't do things... By half measures, no. it's like, you know, you're going to go hard. You're, gonna, you're definitely going to go home. So what happened then? Did you go home? I did not go home. So essentially I just booked in a physio appointment the next day, went to physio, had some treatment. She told me I needed surgery. I said, no, I wasn't having surgery, but I was going to be back in the sled in, you know, two months time. And she laughed at me. And um, that was fair because, you know, rotator cuffs do usually require mm. surgery. And, and I just was really, really determined to get back in. So. Yeah. I'd do my rehab while the girls were training and then I would kind of cook dinner for them and then yeah. we'd go to the track and then in my double sling 
or like my single sling, I would just sit by the side of the track and take video footage because yep. that's yep. how pilots learn best is sure. by having a look at their video. And and I just sat with coaches and listened to coaches talk and I actually learned a lot sitting yeah, on the yeah. side, um, listening to what people had said. And, and I think I picked up the bulk of my understanding from sitting on the sideline. Um, Gave you a different perspective. Really did. It was mm. really interesting. And then six weeks later, I, I got back in a sled for the first time back in Whistler. And that was a, a really cool, it was a really, really cool experience to get back in there. Were you told at that time that you would never play elite sport again? Yeah. 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 I love physio sometimes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, you know, at the time it looked, it looked really bad. And yeah. I was sitting there in two slings and I walk into this physio and she's like, oh gosh. And she said, you know, realistically, you need your shoulders for both bobsled and rugby. And there's a good chance that you're not really going to recover properly from this. And you need to kind of do the best you can, but also be aware that this might be permanent damage. Wow. And you just refuse to accept that. Yeah. I'm not really good at taking no as an answer. <laughs> so you, you're back in the sled. It was 2018. You were aiming for the Winter Olympics yes. at that stage. Yeah. What year did you start? What year are we at Whistler now? Mm, 2016, 2017. Jeez, not long before mm. Olympics. Yep. What did you have to do to qualify? Essentially, we needed a certain number of races. Um, and at the time, because of the rules, it was really trying to encourage smaller nations to get it, to represent bobsled at the sure. Olympics. And yeah. so there was a rule that if we were the only nation from kind of Australasia mm -hmm. and we ended up in the top 35, 30, then we could go to the Olympics. And so our goal, we wanted to qualify and race in as many races as possible, have as much race experience, mm -hmm. as many runs on as many tracks as we possibly could. So mm -hmm. we kind of traveled North America and Europe and got well within enough races. We got the points we needed. How many races did you do? We needed, I think it was five at the time. Mm -hmm. And so we did something like eight in mm -hmm. the season, which for our first proper season, especially in Olympic season mm -hmm. by ourselves was, was quite a lot. Yeah. And um, we were really excited with Success. that. Success? Yeah. Yeah, we were really proud of what we achieved. So, yes, you qualified. We did. So not only were you the top nation in Australasia, top 35 in the world. Yep. You made it. <laughs> we did. Well, we, we should have made it. We, um, I remember we had planned it really well because we had two races in Whistler, two races in Calgary and two races in Park City to kind of start off our Olympic year. And... We had a weight issue in Calgary. Our sled was 100 grams underweight. Wow. And we ended up getting disqualified from that race. And so we needed five. So we were kind of a little bit nervous. But um, I remember our last race in Park City signified the fifth race. And I remember there's a photo of the three of us hugging at the end because we knew that we had just, we just qualified for the Olympics and yeah. we were so excited. And then politics happened and... How soon after? So you knew you'd qualify, but how soon after did you get that phone call? Um, we got the phone call probably mid to late Jan. So we had qualified in December and then the cutoff period was like the 16th, 17th of January. And then um, they kind of send Olympic nominations out soon after that, like the 22nd, 23rd. And so we had gone over to Europe. We'd raced in Austria. We'd raced in France. Self-funded? Self-funded, completely self-funded, self-managed as well. So everything was booked by us and planned mm. by us. And then we were in Switzerland kind of helping out with the World Cup there. We were testing the timing eyes on the track before the actual World Cup race started. And um, then we got a phone call 
about our Olympic nomination and, and we were told, I remember we were sitting outside a supermarket in the van and we were told that they had not nominated us for the Olympic team. So this is Sliding Sports Australia. Yes. So your governing body. They were our governing body. Were your governing body. They decided that you were not going to go. Why did they decide that? Um, at the time, we were told that we didn't hit the standards that was required from the Australian Federation to yeah, go. Yeah, you hit the international standards. Yeah, so the Australian standards Set were... Set by the IOC. Yep, yeah. So the, the Australian standards were more based around kind of lifting and, and sprinting. So like our, f- our our physical numbers in the gym and on the running track as opposed... Oh, and they were also kind of to push numbers that we needed that we just missed out on by a couple of hundreds. And, um, and, and that was the reason that they gave us. How crushing was that? Oh. You've spent yeah. just the last <laughs> two years dreaming of this, working towards this. You've self-managed, self-funded. You got yourselves there to the standards set by the IOC and yeah. then Sliding Sports Australia say, no, girls, you're not going. You don't meet yeah. our standard? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're... From a country without a track in Australia? Yep. To be honest, I, I've tried to relive this moment or explain this moment and I, I don't quite think there are any real words to explain it. And I also don't think I really understood what was going on at the time. It didn't really sink in until I'd gone back to Australia and was watching the opening ceremony. And I was like, oh, oh, there's the men's team. We should be there. And I remember at the time so I got So there was a, a men's bobsled team? There was a men's bobsled team, yep. And, and they, they wholeheartedly completely deserved to go and, and we were really excited for them and support, support them to the end of the earth. Like they really deserve to be there. And um, I remember I got, a t- I got a text from a friend at the time. He was like, oh my God, I think I just saw you at the opening ceremony. Oh. And I was like, oh, oh, oh my heart. Yeah. And, and then, then I kind of realized what. Because yeah. this was quite big in the media as well. Um, I watched, I rewatched a Channel 9 story on it. I was working at Channel 9 at the time. And the AOC, the Australian Olympic Committee, backed you guys and they sent out a statement. Jana Pittman did too, who's like a great Olympian and winter Olympian and made that switch from sprinting to, uh, from athletics over to um, bobsled. And the AOC statement said, similar discretions in other winter disciplines has turned Australian Olympic rookies into established world-class performers. I, when I heard the quotes given by the Sliding Sports Australia and I rewatched it, the thing that just kept screaming to me is like, they're so patronising. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't really, uh, there, there was Didn't so much. Didn't make sense yeah. at all. And it was patronising. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot going on at the time, to be honest. We, because as soon as we found out we weren't going, for me, it was like, okay, well, what's next? What do we do next? We can't go home on this. We have to do something. And and one of my teammates was kind of corresponding with the media and, and the federation. The other one was corresponding with the federation. And I was like, well, there's a race coming up. So why don't we just do that? And at the time it was world juniors, world junior champs and junior and bobsleds like 24 and under, 25 mm-hmm. and under, because, you know, it's a sport you generally it's get into as, a, sec- yeah, as yeah. a second sport as well. So the, yeah, the age can be quite high. So I just really tried to focus on that. If I wasn't going to go to the Olympics, I was going to make sure that I was the brakeman that was racing at that race. And I just remember we were getting phone calls at all times of the night, all throughout the day. There were so many people calling us. And I think I kind of just sort of disassociated with it. Like I didn't really pick up my phone much because I just couldn't couldn't handle that. And then also trying to 
keep training for this race, knowing that it wasn't going where we thought it was going to go. And, and um, you know, I think honestly to us in no scenario that we had planned for the season were we not going to the Olympics. Mm. There was just a part of it was, you know, as an athlete, you always plan to achieve sure. what you set out to. No plan B, focus but, on plan A. Yeah. And, and not only that, but like, why would you not we just we just always thought that there'd be no reason that we wouldn't go because it would just be so good for our nation and our sport. And so I think the the more that it became obvious that we actually really weren't going, the kind of more confused I got. I was like, what do you what do you mean when I of course we're going to the Olympics? Like we we have to go to the Olympics. We've we've done the work and uh yes. Yeah, we met was, the international standard. Yeah, we the IOC standard. Yeah, we we have like I have my my ID badge that says that has me in an Olympic shirt and says, Congratulations, you've made the Australian Olympic team. Like, what do you mean? I'm I'm going to the Olympics and we weren't going to the Olympics. <laughs> did you feel like you had a means to be able to fight that? We did. We really tried. We we tried every avenue. We tried legal. We tried pleading, begging. You know, we there was a petition that went around that actually wasn't started by us, but but we were really following it while we were over there. And and we just tried everything that we possibly could. How powerless did that make you feel then? Yeah, I it was. I think the first time in my life that. I had realized that people, that, that if I wanted something, I had to make sure that there was no reason anyone could say no. I think, you know, I, I got into sport. Sport was my dream and my life because I love the fact that I could work hard at something. And if I worked harder than everyone else, I could achieve it. To me, it's just, it's just a work plus time effort equals results. And I think it was the first time in my life that I've been like, oh, you can work as hard as possible and someone else can still tell you you're not good enough. And that was a huge life turning point for me. You have spent your last couple of years dreaming of this moment. How then did you pick yourself up to keep going and write, all right, well, let's train for the next Olympics. Let's keep competing in this. How difficult was that? To be honest, it's it's been a journey. Um, the word failure is never, it's not even in my vocabulary. So after that all happened, I was, I was in a, a really bad state. I was just, yeah, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know who I was. This is my identity. It just completely crumbled mm. out of nowhere as well. And um, I didn't know what I was going to do or what I wanted or who I was. And and I think I always knew that I was going to continue with sport, but then I was tossing up between going back to rugby and staying in bobsled. And and um, I remember my coach at the time said to me, look, Ash, try driving. And I was like, no, man, I don't want to drive. Like, no way. That's not like, I, lo- I love being a brakeman. I love pushing. I love working on the sled. And he said, look, just try something new. You never know. You might love it. And if you don't love it, then you can go back to rugby. Just come do three weeks. And there was a, a camp in Lake Placid in upstate New York. And um and Lake Placid is one of the most technical tracks in the world. So I was like, oh yeah, man, okay, never driven a sled. Like, let's go and learn at the hardest <laughs> track in the world. Why not? Um, but you know, like, what else was I going to do? I I mm. didn't know. So I I jumped on a plane and I went to Lake Placid. And um, my first day in a in a monobob again. We were learning in in monobobs, um, off start four, which was like corner nine. And I got to the bottom and I was like, all right, so I need a sled. I need a team. I need some money. Like this is, <laughs> this is my thing. And it ignited you. Oh, I loved, I loved driving. It <laughs> was just 
all of a sudden after everything I'd learned from sitting trackside and listening to coaches and taking videos and and being in the back seat because everything mm. I learned as a pilot, I learned from feeling the pressure in the back, mm. all of a sudden had just come together and it was like, wow, this is, this is something I could do. Mm. And um, so I had that. And then I also went back to rugby. I was playing league at the time. I, I got a professional contract with the North Sydney Bears. And so I was doing something outside of bobsled as well. Yeah. So I was still kind of loving training and the process. Um, I was still in a in a really bad place. I was studying as well. So I was I was really overloading myself kind of mm, so I didn't really have to think about it. Did you fear that if you started this process again, the same thing could happen in oh, four years' time? Yeah. They pull the plug. Yeah. I think even if you make it. I remember being in Chile um one day playing at rugby training and all of a sudden I just kind of started crying. And this was before the Olympics. And I didn't I didn't know what was going on and at the time, I, I called a friend of mine who was actually on the Jamaican team. He was hmm. a skeleton athlete. And I said to him, you know, man, I'm I'm just crying. I'm so scared because what if I don't make it? And he said, well, what if you don't make it? And I was like, mm. oh, what if I don't make it? Like, like mm. to me, that was self-explanatory. And, and he was like, ah, so little people in the world actually get a chance to follow their childhood dream. And would you rather quit now and say, well, I could have done that. Or would you rather give it everything you have? And maybe it works out and maybe it doesn't, but at least you knew that you were true to who you were as a person and you gave it everything. And to be honest, I never said this to him, but after we missed out on the Olympics, I was like, man, I wish I hadn't even tried. (laughs) For a long time, I I really kind of not regretted it, but I, I kept thinking of what if, what if, what if, but now hindsight, four years later, he was a hundred percent right. Like I, I'm so thankful that even though it didn't work out the way that I expected it to, it pushed me on this completely different journey. And, um, you know, who knows if we'd gone to the Olympics, maybe I would have gone back to rugby and said, okay, that was fun. I'm done. Or maybe I would have continued and we would have had more success. Like we just, we just don't know, but I know that I definitely wouldn't be where I am right now. And, and I'm thankful for that. And the AOC changed the rules. Well, the yes. rules changed. Yes. So the rules are now changed, which is amazing. And Explain um, that. So before 2018, essentially, the AOC couldn't override a decision made by a national federation on their Olympic selection. And since then, now um, the AOC can, so they can kind of make decisions based on if an athlete goes or not, if the federation says no. So I'm very thankful for that because it means what happened to us can never happen again. And mm. is that because amazing. of you girls? Yeah. Well done. Yeah. So yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. It's good in the future. It doesn't make yeah. make up for it, but at Absolutely. least some, as we said, at least some good came from it. All right. So, how successful is your team after 2018? You've made the switch into driver. I have made the switch into driver. It's been it's been a journey. It's um, oh, I just never expected that my life would <laughs> be where it has been for the past couple of years. Um, we had an amazing season straight after. Olympic season. My first year as a driver, we ended up coming second overall in North America. And it was like what? 20. Yeah, it was, which was amazing. Like, yeah. That was unbelievable. And and we were 20, ranked 21 in the world. And I wow. won a, our first gold medal in North America in the Monobob event at Lake Placid, my home track. Um, <laughs> so shout out. Um, <laughs> so that was an amazing wow. season for us. And, and that was a, a great way to start off our new Olympic quad 
Did you need to do that for yourself too, to go, I'm not going to listen to you tell me that I'm not good enough. I need to be able to, to prove to myself that I am good enough. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've i been thinking about this a lot lately. At, at the time, absolutely. I was like, I need to prove that I I deserve it and I'm good enough. But what I didn't realize was it kind of set me up for a um, this idea in the future of everything being results-based. And, you know, for me, now that I look back, it was enough that I just came back to the sport after everything. And that mm. was proof enough that I was resilient and yeah. determined and had the amazing work ethic and, and you know, was so thankful for my support network. And I should have been really grateful for that and for the team that I've built. And I am. I am so... The team that I've built is just incredible. Mm. My teammates, every every person that has ever gotten into my sled is a part of my family. And mm. I couldn't be the driver that I am today without them. And I'm so thankful for that. But at the time, I was like, oh, I've, I've won a gold medal. This proves something to me. And I think I look back and and it shouldn't have. The, the medals and the results mm-hmm. were amazing, but they didn't make me a better person or a more deserving person or a stronger, fitter, faster person. What made me that was my desire to want to achieve and get back in and prove to myself that I could face one of the worst things an athlete can face and come back. And that has been a real big shift for me in the past just a couple of months, honestly. Yeah, that's so powerful. I just wanted to pick up quickly about when you went back and did your league contract, you talk about that with North Sydney Bears and you were playing rugby league. You just wanted to have just something else other than bobsled after that 2018 decision. You suffered a concussion. Yeah. And it was a pretty bad one too. It was. It was it was quite horrific. It was actually my second concussion in two years. So I had had a concussion playing rugby, playing 15s a couple of years beforehand, or two years before. And it was an odd one because I got hit in the throat. In a tackle? Yeah, in a tackle. Um, a girl just kind of came out of nowhere and put her arm above her above my shoulder and, and she was quite a little so bit shorter young. than me and she just, yeah. yeah, swung her arm up and hit me square across the throat. And it was a bit hard at the time because, um, you know, normally concussion people think head hit, head clash. Yeah. And so um, there was kind of a breakdown in communication and, and no one really knew that I had a concussion. So I kind of came out the other side after that game and was like a little unsteady off my feet, was really tired, didn't really know what was going on. And then I, I walked in a couple of days later to our physio and they said, oh, you know, I heard, I heard you maybe got a little bit of a concussion on the weekend. And I was like, what? What? Like, no, I got hit in the throat. And it was kind of after that, that I did a bit more research. And I, I spoke to the physios at Sports Lab who were amazing through my rehab. They, I, yeah, they're amazing. We kind of nutted out what had happened and, and where, where things were going wrong. And, and it was a really bad concussion. I had destroyed my vestibular system. So my vision, if anyone was kind of moving in my peripherals, I was vomiting. Oh, wow. I, I failed something like 14 concussion, like return to play tests. Wow. I couldn't remember anything. I couldn't focus. I was having migraines. You know, I had a, a German test. I was studying German. Hey. And, <laughs> and um, I had a, an exam the week after, like maybe five days later. And I remember I was sitting in my exam looking at my paper and it said student name, student number. And my brain couldn't comprehend uh, what to write there. Yeah, right. And so I had to like kind of look at the person next to me and saw they were, okay, they wrote their name at the top and then their number after. My yeah. brain, it just couldn't comprehend the words. I could read the words, but I didn't know yeah, what it meant. Yeah. How long and, did that go on for? Uh, I 
had like real, real, really bad concussion symptoms for a couple months. My hand-eye coordination was completely destroyed. I had to rebuild that, my memory system. For me to be able to focus for maybe more than an hour without struggling took me maybe like a year. Oh my gosh. A bit more than that. I had post-concussion migraines for a year and a half. Wow. Um, so anytime I would look at a computer screen, even when I was sliding, um, I was taking, I had to take a lot of Panadol because just the the vibration of being in the sled was too much. And so these, you're still going through it even when you went, yeah, yeah right. Because Back essentially I was, I was cleared to play. So, yeah. you know, me, I could run and I could train mm. and that was okay. But it wasn't until I got over and sat in a sled that I was like, oh. It's a different movement, it's a different isn't it? Movement. Different yeah. yeah. And, you know, being driving a sled, your head is just kind of generally moving around and vibrating. And so you kind of get used to it. But when I came back from the season, I still had my migraines that I'd had before I left. And and so I was a little bit worried and ended up getting a, um, a contract with the New South Wales Institute of Sport. And I had some um, musculoskeletal testing. I couldn't really stand properly on two feet. I couldn't stand on one foot. My balance was terrible. I couldn't remember words. And this was maybe two years after my concussion. Wow. And um, at that stage, they sent me to a concussion specialist to get rechecked. And um, it turned out that I was, I was okay. I didn't have any lasting physiological problems, but I just had to completely retrain all of my balance systems and everything. And that was, that was a big, big shock to me. Yeah. And that was quite difficult. It's almost like a, it was like a trauma where you had to relearn. Absolutely. After traumas, you have to, you know, rewire your brain to yeah. send those messages. Yeah. And the same the as, muscles and, yeah, exactly. And the same as if, you know, you had a grade three tear or you tore a muscle completely or you tore it through the bone, you would have to do the initial healing period and then you'd have to do the rehab to bring it back up to, to strength. And that was, I guess, I guess the way I look at concussions now. And I think it's, it's the way that people need to look at concussions. There's going to be the initial healing process, which is really tough, but then you need to do the the training afterwards to get it back to full strength. Your brain is the same. You have to train it the same way. There's so much we don't know about concussion, isn't it? Oh, it's it's terrifying, yeah. yeah. Did you fear for your sporting future during those years? Or are you just <sighs> not that person, are you? <laughs> I probably should have. Yeah. <laughs> but I think at the time I was just so focused on getting back to 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 bobsled and getting back to training that I I didn't really think of the lasting consequences because you know you, there are so many in every sport especially in the sport that I do there's so many dangerous things that could go wrong at any time and I do sport because I love the outcome I love working hard I love training I love meeting people and seeing these amazing places and I love the speed and if I lived my life being scared of everything that could go wrong, I would, I would never get in a sled again. <laughs> so I think, you know, again, it's the thing you accept, you accept the risks and you try to do everything to mitigate and manage. So you, I wear a mouth guard and make sure my helmet fits properly. I get a new helmet when it starts to get a little, you know, hollowed out and I do everything I can to take the most safety precautions. But, you know, you could, you could suffer anything walking across the street. You talk about building your team. You recruited fittest woman on the earth, four-time yep. <laughs> fittest woman on earth, four-time CrossFit I did. champion, yes. a legend, gold, Commonwealth Games, gold medalist weightlifter, yep. CrossFit legend, yep. anymore, Tia Claire Toomey yep. to your side. Yep. And you wrote her an email. I, I did. 
I did. Did you, did you slide into her DMs? I tried. Yeah. I tried so hard. <laughs> so slide into the Instagram DMs. She didn't see it. So I was like, well, I'm going to have to go with the formal option. And I, <laughs> I wrote her a very, very long email. Um, and I just, I did not expect anything from it, honestly. I just wrote my story. I told her about what had happened and, and about my dream. And, you know, my dream isn't just to go to the Olympics. I want to be competitive at the Olympics and I want to prove, I want to prove that we as a, an Australian summer nation, as a warm nation, can front up in a winter sport. And um, that's that's my ultimate goal. And um, I just wrote her an email and she replied back saying, oh, I'm, I'm really interested. And I was like, What? What? My housemate heard me scream and thought something had happened. I'd gotten into a fight with a cat or something or had like fallen over. And I'm sitting there in my room just crying, looking at my phone. <laughs> I've just recruited the fittest woman on earth. I was like, oh my God, I think something amazing has just happened. But can you read? I can't see through my tears. That's um, cool. <laughs> yeah. So she's trained with the side. Yep. You guys have gone to South Korea. You just yep. came back from a training camp in South Korea. Yes. Um, you said in one of your posts, you know, to Tia Claire, your guidance, feedback and advice have changed the course of this season and my life. Oh, that's big. I'm going to cry. <laughs> Tell me why. Yeah. why? Oh, um, this season has just, it's been a whirlwind. It's been crazy and amazing. And, and for me, out of my whole six-year career in bobsled and my whole 20, how old am I? 28 years of life has just been the most personal growth I've had in myself and so much of that is because of Tia and Shane and and we were so lucky that that Shane came along as well and her husband yeah, yeah her husband yeah they're together they're the most amazing dream mm. team and she is the athlete she is because of him and and I love that I love seeing that together and having their energy on the team was amazing um I'm a person that will always ask for feedback I love I love growing I love learning and so you know I'd frequently just just walk into her room and be like, tell me two things I can do better this week. Or, mm. you know, you said, you mentioned this in training. Can you explain this to me so I can be better at this? Or, mm. or she, you know, she'd just come into my room and say, you know, something you said today, you know, maybe we could think about it this way. And same with Shane. And I loved that mm. because it meant that I was always growing, always learning. And their feedback for me in the gym, you know, just in my physiology, but also as a person and especially as a leader, has just influenced every part of my life mm -hmm. and who I am and the way I see things. And, you know, her resilience and her story is, is amazing. And I just loved being able to bounce ideas off, off them for everything. And, and they just helped me look at the world and my sport and my training and my goals in a way I had never thought to look before. And it was honestly just incredible. So we see... Tia Claire at the um at the Winter Olympics. What do you girls have to do to get to the Olympics this yeah. time? Olympic season. <laughs> this one's going to be a big We've one. Got the other hurdle out of the way. Yeah. AOC can decide. Yeah. Can you rubber stamp this decision? Yeah. But what do you have to do in order to get to that point? So I would like to point out we we now actually have a new federation. Um, you do? Yeah, Bobsleigh Skeleton Australia, and they're they're fantastic. They're they're just doing the best they can, and they are really supportive of the athletes and and. Um, yeah, I know they're going to support us no matter what happens to to get as many of our teams there as possible. And that's, yeah. that gives us a lot of, it gives me a lot of confidence going into the season, knowing that they have my best interests at heart. And, um, you know, this season's going to be a big one. Um, we're going to be away for eight months, a long time. 
we will need eight races to qualify for the Games, which is a, a lot of races in a mm. short amount of time. And then it's all going to be points-based. So um, we're still trying to kind of work out how it's going to work with two disciplines because this is the first time women have had two disciplines. Yeah, the monobob and yep. the two men, two yep. person. Yeah. So it'll be combined ranking. Yeah. Um, and so at the moment we're just kind of looking at the season plan and oh, seeing wow. okay. yeah. what's going to be the best opportunity for us to to do well and get the points that we need and and yeah. I'm actually really excited. Good. <laughs> I'm so excited. I'm excited. <laughs> It's cool because we're going to have Tokyo Summer Olympics this year and then Winter Olympics, we normally have to wait two oh, years. But sports no, fans. It's sports fans are going crazy. Year. This is awesome. <laughs> it's condensed, condensed sporting Olympic quad. But uh, yeah, cool. it's, it's going to be amazing. Um, the final question that we ask every guest, what advice you would give to your 10-year-old self? Oh, I have so much. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the two things that I would definitely tell my 10-year-old self would be number one, and in this order as well. Number mm-hmm. one, it's okay to fail. Yes. Absolutely. I love, that. I love that. Yep. And the second is that everything happens for a reason. And the the reason that it's those that order is because if you know that it's okay to fail, you will give everything a go and you will give yourself to everything. And if you believe that everything happens for a reason, if you don't make that team or you do, you know, fail in quotation marks, you will believe that it's teaching you something and that it's a stepping stone for the next great thing you're going to do. And it will really change the way that you view hurdles and obstacles and setbacks because it's not something that's going to destroy you. It's something that's going to make you stronger so that you're ready for the next amazing thing that comes across. I love that so much, Ash. Awesome. So much. <laughs> you have no idea. I've learned that through experience. Well, yeah, through, through failures and through through um, triumphs as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. And you learn a lot more from the failures than you do from the triumphs. Unfortunately, as, as amazing as the triumphs are, I, I've always walked away from, you know, maybe we've had a slow run or maybe I have missed a lift in the gym and I can always walk away and say, okay, well, you know what, I'm, I'm definitely going to get that next time. It ignites that hunger, but it also, it keeps you curious and it keeps you learning and, and that's why we get into sport. That's, I know for me, that's why I do what I do. And it's why I love what I do. It's always learning and, and not being afraid to fail just means that you will be vulnerable yeah. and give yourself to anything you do. And that's the only way you're going to succeed. hundred percent. And then you'll die knowing, you know, when you're old, you'll know that you gave it the best shot, not exactly. wondering what if, I no think regrets. what if could be really cruel. It is. It's a scary thought. So I'd much rather be where I am now and say, you know what, I gave everything that I have done 100% of me and the people in my life still love me and I'm still working hard than kind of leaving it before things get scary and saying, well, you know, I never know what could have happened. And that's why I look back at 2018 and I say, it happened and it was horrible, but I am fearless now and I'm strong <laughs> and I know that I'm scared to to try XYZ but I know that that's exactly why I have to do it and I can't I love wait that. to see what you and your awesome team can produce in the lead up to next year's winter <laughs> games I cannot wait but thank you so much Ash for coming and sharing your story with On Her Game. Thank you so much for having me I'm so excited to be able to share this amazing sport and my story to everyone that wants to listen On Her Game was presented by me, Sam Squires, producer, Lindsay Green, audio producer, Darcy Thompson, executive producer, Jennifer Goggin.
listener.